0: Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 38. On this show, John and Greg attempt to defuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 38. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm
1: John Polstro, And I'm Greg Monteith.
0: All right, we got some more listener feedback. Listener feedback to episode 35, which was titled, Love is More Than Grace. We had some feedback directed to Greg and some feedback directed to me. So I thought we would... uh, Read from that and then just kind of take it from there. So the first section is addressed to Greg and it says, Greg, you mentioned that love and truth are greater than grace and should be the focus and that those who focus on grace are still too preoccupied with their sin. I would agree that people who don't focus on grace are those who aren't really aware of the normity of their sin. When that sin becomes apparent to a person, then grace becomes a lot more crucial to their story. You know the woman in scripture who has been forgiven much and thus loves much? Luke 7. Anyone who doesn't focus on grace isn't truly aware of the enormity of their sin. And then the next section was addressed to me and it says, John, it's interesting that you shared about your life that you really haven't done a whole lot of shocking things in your life or quote big sin. You remind me of someone I know. They take pride in their outward righteousness. They were a virgin when they were married. They don't drink or smoke. They pray an enormous amount, spend daily time in the Word, and are involved in their church, etc., etc. But during the last years of my life has been so painful, they've had little compassion or mercy towards me, and the pain they have caused me has gone profoundly deep. When the rubber hit the road, they saw themselves as so righteous that they couldn't see God's work, God at work in my life. After all, who was I to have heard from God? And they've had some fairly significant experiences of experiencing and hearing from God. Why wouldn't God speak to them in the same way? Considering their enormous outward righteousness, their arrogance is astounding to me. That's the problem with the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He sees the younger brother and just can't seem to wrap his mind around the fact that the father's love for the younger brother is just as true and deep. I say that because I hope that your position would be different than that person I'm describing. Sometimes that outward righteousness can be a snare. You don't come across as an arrogant person, but many people might not think this other person is either or be aware of what they have done to me. Please, please, keep yourself humble with regard to your position. So my reply to that, which included my request for permission to read the part that I just read, was... One immediate clarification I would want to make is that while I currently have a hard time, quote, seeing the gravity of my sin and shortcomings, in no way do I discount or doubt the experiences that you or others have had in experiencing God's grace or love. And in no way would I think I'm better than you or anyone else because of what I have or have not done. If anything, I envy your experiences of God that I don't have. And so... Hopefully people hear that loud and clear. <laughs> I was a little uncomfortable after we recorded that episode 35 and wondering if I don't know, I, the, the, mm-hmm. the way that I put it out there was I I was a little I just kind of had this nagging feeling of okay, I'm I'm being as like open and vulnerable as I can be here and it's it's possible this could be taken the wrong way. So hopefully that reframes thing for people greg i i guess i'm curious to go back to the part if you had any response to the to the question or statements directed to you in the first part
1: i'm trying to think of where to go i i have uh i have a bible open to luke 7 it's interesting because the that uh chapter begins and ends with this emphasis on faith actually so it begins with the centurion and uh Uh, And and Jesus uh, replying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And it ends with the section on the woman and it, it ends in verse 50. And he, being Jesus, said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think that the point is well taken that those who have been forgiven much love much. I think I would make a couple of uh i would emphasize a couple of things briefly one is they love much and most of what i hear from christians about responding to god is gratitude and thankfulness particularly in the context of grace and salvation i do not hear love much so i think the listener has zeroed in on something that is the most important it's going in the right direction in terms of you know my emphasis on love and truth the reality from the text is being given much we love much we're not simply grateful or gratitude we love bingo yeah that's right on um, In terms of the enormity of one's sin, I would say that God comes to us in the way that God needs to. We hear from God in the way that we need to. Why? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. God has our best interests at heart. And knowing us better than we know ourselves, God loves us more deeply than we, lo- than we love ourselves. And so this idea of emphasis on sin Do we have to understand? See, again, I would put this in the, in the right way of understanding what, what is sin? What is sin? How does this all fit together, right? Within a, in a way of understanding God, where God is on the one hand sovereign. Sin is a list of things you do wrong. Sin is a thing, a list of reasons why you are responsible for, I don't know, punishment or, uh, uh, repercussions. When we think about God as our parent and as our father, sin is their acts or dispositions, conscious or preconscious, omissive or commissive, that thwart the relationship that we have. So is there a consequence? Is there a necessity to understanding this idea that I am in a position of, if you like, wrong standing relative to God? Yeah, there is. And were there implications for that? Well, yeah, there was. Following through with with uh, you know Jesus both fulfilling the covenant on Israel's behalf and taking on the curses relative to Israel's failure of the covenant again on their behalf, and that as a result being the basis for the f- possibility of God fulfilling God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations, which means the Gentiles are brought in you and i i am not a jew by background neither are you i don't think john we have the possibility of being in right relationship with god through that that sequence of events that all kind of focus on jesus as as messiah and within that situation is it important that we are people who are almost naturally if you will in wrong relationship with god or wrongly disposed to god absolutely is is understanding that and having some sense of the gravity of it. So on the one hand I would say there's a there's an apprehension of the gravity of the situation is that important for everybody? Yes, I think so. But in a particular sense at not just a a kind of in a, an initial sort of understanding of here's how this came about, here's how much it cost God, here's how much how f- far the you know the gap was between us. Yeah, that's important to understand. And that's the more traditional conception of sin. That's the conception of sin where God is sovereign. But the conception of of sin where God is parent is a totally different thing. It, they're interwoven, but they're far more ongoing. So when it's, in you know, the comments written here, I would agree that people who don't focus on grace are those who aren't really aware of the enormity of their sin. I think what's happening there is not so much that these are people who don't have a conception of what what was at stake or what is at stake in terms of God as sovereign, but rather in terms of God as parent. What's going on there? Every time I am doing things that thwart that relationship, I am taking myself out of and away from the one I love most. I am creating distance. I am creating an inability to relate rightly. With the one that I most want to be close to, with the one that I most want to relate rightly to. And that for me is, is a really big deal. So I guess what I would say is there are two different conceptions of what this idea of sin is and the enormity of sin. It sounds to me like this notion of sin in the sense of uh, wrongdoings relative to a sovereign, not so much as that which thwarts relationship with my parent and my beloved. So, But what about someone like me that doesn't feel like they have that relationship? Well, um, I guess I would say that I don't think that sin piece is that important. Not now. If you don't feel you've got a relationship, then it's hard to really feel the the weight and the impact of choices that you make that thwart a non-existent relationship, right? I think there's probably sort of, I'm, I'm kind of um, uh, speculating here. I haven't really thought this through. This is just kind of on the fly right here and now. I wonder if there's, an, if there's an order, if there's a sequence to this, and if part of what we need to do is as part of the process of understanding. So, you know, we talked before about this, this kind of, I, I would put this in a sequence, this notion of belief. So basic belief, do you believe, can you believe that, that there is a, div- a divine entity? And then understanding, what understanding? If you can believe that, then then what do you have of the Christian understanding? And of course, how does that under, how does that stack up with other understandings? Right? I'm not suggesting that there aren't other perspectives on uh, divinity. Uh, I'm simply uh, suggesting I, I'm I would argue for the fact that the, the Christian understanding is the best one. But I also argue for that out of an experience of God that conforms with that particular understanding. I'm not arguing for Christianity because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I've had experiences and understanding that go together that that say, you know, this is legit. So, I think if you don't have that relationship with God, then on the one hand, could that situation be one where you don't as the 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 listener wrote in, you don't understand the enormity of your sin? It might be it might be, but it sounds to me more like people who don't focus on grace or those who really don't are aware of the enormity of their sin. It sounds like we're talking about Christians already here because the non-Christians don't formulate things in terms of sin. It's not a concept that exists in the non-Christian world. Uh, it makes no sense. So I guess if the, if the writer is uh, thinking about Christians, Are there Christians whose relationship with God is uh, flimsy or their practice of Christianity is hollow because they don't understand the things that they do wrong? Maybe. My hunch is that it's more the case that these are people who haven't entered into that love relationship in a way that is gripping for them, in a way that they have allowed themselves to be open and maybe where certain things have happened that open them, right? I'm not putting it all down to the individual but maybe there's always an interaction, a transaction between God and us. And if we don't have that, I'm not sure how we can move forward. You're like moving forward on an idea, you know, The uh, or you're, you're kind of going back to some of Kyle Eidelman's, well, somebody's told me that, you know, there's heaven and hell at the end of the road and I don't really believe in God, but I'm just going to, you know, choose to believe in God because I think the idea of hell is pretty scary. Well, <laughs> Okay, so hell is scary. That's a good place to start. But but the response to hell is scary isn't I better believe in God. You know, you better there, – there's more that has to go into that because that's that's not a relationship. That's a false representation of what it's supposed to be to be in relationship. So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question though, John.
0: Hang on just a second. There's a lot of chaos going on here and I'm having a hard time concentrating. I'll be right back. You bet. Okay. I'm not feeling on my game at all today. I think you gave a good presentation. I mean, how how did... Well, okay, so maybe roll me back to the kind of... Just summarize the path that you were going on, and then I'll try to respond with something and kind of get us going again.
1: The path I was taking is essentially coming back to this idea of seeing God in, in two different ways. Seeing God as sovereign, seeing God as parent. And that's kind of parallel with this idea of Christians being servants, Christians being children. And again, parallel with the two primary notions, love and truth. Or maybe I should better say truth and love in terms of sovereignty, servant, truth, parent, child, love. You know, and they both, they both interplay there, uh, both of those um, sort of emotional qualities or, or characteristics. But I guess when I hear a comment like, and I'm just quoting again, I would agree that people who don't focus on God are those who aren't really aware of the enormity of their sin. And I think, maybe, maybe, it depends on what you mean. What do you mean by sin here? And what particularly do you mean by enormity of their sin? These must be Christians, so we must be, because sin doesn't apply to the non-Christian world. So I guess I could reread that sentence. I would agree that Christians who don't focus on grace, pardon me, I read that sentence wrong, I would agree that, I'm inserting the word Christians instead of people. Um, I would agree that Christians who don't focus on grace are those who aren't really aware of the enormity of their sin. And I guess I would say ultimately the goal is you're not supposed to be aware of the enormity of your sin. That's, That's not on God's horizon. God is focused on relationship with you. God is focused on the coming about of God's kingdom. And within that context of relationship with you, it's not all about me, right? God has plans for how things should be. God is bringing all things right as reasserting ownership and claim over all things because all things are God's. And in that process, there is an ongoing uh, uh, effort on God's part. Which could be described as wooing, could be described as inviting, could be described as opening possibilities for you and me to be in right relationship with God and thereby with ourselves, with others, and with the physical world in which we exist. That's the, that's the deal. So where does, where does uh, being aware of the enormity of your sin fit into that picture? It may fit in a number of places, but is it the overall goal? Absolutely not.
0: I think the part that strikes me, too, is say for a moment that it is supposed mm. to be a path, mm. I myself have found it kind of an unworkable path. For me, it's the idea that that it's very hard, if not impossible, to force myself to feel a certain way. Yeah. Or to talk myself into a certain belief. Yeah. So it could... I'll be the first to admit, it could be that I have some personal hang-up about admitting that I've done something wrong, but, and, instead of but, now what? (laughs) So, in other words, if,
1: maybe that's where God ends up meeting me, I don't know. I think I see what you're saying. It seems like a dead end. That That type of orientation seems like a dead end. So I can imagine... Christians again that we're talking about that the, the writer may be talking about Christians who don't focus on grace are those who really aren't aware of the enormity of their sin. Well, there are you know I've been in in church situations where uh, you know there were three uh, three uh, pastors or 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 you know they were called elders in that situation but they were they were the, they were the the pastors of the church and one of the one of the guys go, this is a real story. One of the guys off on vacation, and the uh, <clears throat> the second guy tries to lead a coup and get him ejected from the church. And He's not even there. And I, I don't care what you what you think. I mean, as, it, as far as I knew, too, there was nothing. There was no no good reason other than you know, is this guy relevant for us anymore? It's not a question of practice or discipline or any of those other things, which I'm going to leave aside my views on those. I'm not going to touch those. I'm just going to say as a category, this was simply, do we really want this guy to be with us? But he waits until the guy goes on vacation, and then he tries to get him ousted from the church. Now, does does this particular minister, did he need to have a sense of the enormity of his sin? Maybe. Maybe that's what he needed. Maybe he what he needed was to be more in touch with the people around him. Maybe it's a big picture you know of everything going on. And so I guess what I think is in most of these cases what it's coming back down to is um I guess what I what I read in when I see something like isn't really aware of the enormity of their sin what that kind of translates to most in my head and maybe the writer didn't intend this but I think there's a certain sense in which it, it means maybe that person needs a slap up the side of the head. And I'll personalize this and say, there have been times in my life when I have needed a slap up the side of the head. Right? But out of that sort of sense of being startled and awoken and sort of like, hey, buddy, look, this isn't all about you. Um, there's a sense of needing something that's far more profound. So it may start there. It's not going to end there. And is that slap up the side of the head something that people typically need? I don't think so. Some people need it. Yeah. I think that minister who's trying to oust the other minister needed a slap up the side of the head, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't old enough at that point to have the authority in my church to come to him and say, you know, I don't care what this other guy's done. You are totally out of line. And I, I thoroughly disrespect this process and I'm not playing a part in it. I guess it really comes down to what that means, the the enormity of their sin. It sounds to me like a slap up the side of the head, like a reality check in a big way that shakes somebody out of their situation. And do some people need that? Yeah. And I guess the situations that I would see where I would say yes to that most are situations where there have been large scale collusion.
0: So, what's a better, so what's a more helpful, what would you suggest is a more helpful orientation? Maybe for someone like me, maybe I gotta believe that this is. And I guess this is one of the reasons I, I thought this was a great comment. And I appreciate receiving it. Particularly, I, I wanted, I wanted people to see that we're not afraid to read like fairly direct critique, which is kind of mm-hmm. how I took this particular part to me, which was, you sound kind of like the older brother. That's how I interpreted this. And watch out. Fair point. I don't for a second really think of myself as the older brother. I'm willing to consider that. I guess I thought there was value in talking about this more because it has been put forth to me before that, and I probably related it several times before, that I'm not going to get it until I you know, surrender, give it all up, realize how bad, either quote how bad I am or how bad I need God, that then it's, then, then things will kind of come into focus for me. And having tried those things to varying degrees, they haven't worked. And yeah. so I guess for me, and I'm, I want to be really clear, I'm not saying that that hasn't been the path for some people to finding God. And if it has been, I'm not discounting it for a second. I I'm I really am not. I'm not judging it. I'm just like, that was their experience. Uh, I'm not questioning or doubting it. I, I'm more wanting to relate my own experience and I'm assuming that, based on my own experience and the billions of people in the world, other people are having, a, have had a similar place or experience that I have had, and
1: maybe are quote stuck in the same place. Right. Well, what you said there is really helpful because I, I'm getting the contrast between this kind of end of the line um, model, this desperation model, right? We, we saw that at, uh, with Kyle Idleman and not a fan in the, the some of the last couple of chapters. This idea that. You know, we turn to God when life comes crashing down. And and I guess that's part of this notion, being really aware of the enormity of your sin, is being really in a position where, you know, life comes crashing down. And I guess I would say, do people need that? Is that an important thing? I guess it depends on your life, depends on where you're at. It doesn't sound to me, John, like you need that. Okay. (laughs) Well, some people, and some people would say that God actually does that.
0: God brings about the crashing down. God takes away certain things. God, God brings those, God quote, brings those bad things in to get your attention. And so, (laughs) yeah, I agree. (laughs) And so, and the caution there would also be, you know, don't make God, don't force God's hand and make him bring that bad stuff. in. so, you know, get straightened out before he has to bring all the, get straightened out before he really has to bring the hammer down and get your attention.
1: Well, I mean, if you're jumping off the balcony on the second floor and you break your leg, I don't think that's God doing it. I think (laughs) it's consequences of your own actions. (laughs) You know, so I think we have to be really careful about this idea that God's going to do this to us. You know, we live in a world where the, the, a created world as created beings and there are consequences here. And hopefully one of the consequences of, of realizing our consequences is that we say to ourselves, I'm not doing too well here you know what, I'm not a very good choice maker. I'm not a very good uh, person in intimate relationships. I am not good at committing myself financially to situations. And we realize our areas of weakness. And out of that, can we look for help? And can God be part of that? Sure. Could God be the primary uh, player in, in that help? Sure. But does everybody need that? Well, I don't know. Is everybody not good with money? Is everybody not good in intimate relationships? Is everybody not good at following through on work commitments and sticking with jobs? No. No. So if we try to put one solution on everyone, I think we are mischaracterizing people and situations, and we don't want to do that. So I guess the end of the line model, the desperation model is there. Is that a real way of meeting and connecting with God? Is that legitimate? Yes, it is but it's legitimate based on situations and circumstances. And so one of the interesting things that the reader has done here is that the reader has put an example here. And this is this example, this Luke 7 example, actually came up in Kyle Adamman's Not a Fan. And, and it's, it's one of them. I, I really value this. I mean, I think this is a very moving story uh, of Jesus being invited to dinner uh, with, uh, I think it's uh, Simon the, the Pharisee, and, uh, and this woman comes and is, is, uh, I mean, the, the, I want to read this. This is fantastic. Um, this is, uh, Luke seven. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, he's talking to the Pharisee. I have something to say to you. Teacher, he being Simon replied, speak. This is verse 40. I'm reading from and onwards. Then Jesus again a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, this is the prostitute who's there, who shouldn't be there, right? More, uh, the social codes, <laughs> she should not be there. But she is. Simon. He turned to Simon and said, Do you see this woman? I answered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with with ointment. But she has anointed, she, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so I think it's really powerful that this woman is in a is a she is she is aware of just how you know to put it in my earlier language how bad a choice maker she's been and maybe what type of situation she's been in how constrained the possible gamut of her choices is and that's another thing that we need to look at How limited or how available are your resources? You know, and limited resources make everything more difficult. And yet this woman has put herself out. She's totally put herself out. And she's she's come looking for something for Jesus, and he's given her that, right? I see you. I recognize you. I value what you've done. What you've done, your sins are forgiven. And I guess she didn't need to smack up the side of the head. She already had that, if you like. She already, she was living in a world. This is the difference, maybe. This is a big difference between what I hear this, 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 uh, reader who's written back to us writing about and what I'm reading in Luke 7. In Luke 7, this woman is unable anywhere in society to get peace from the idea that she is nothing but deplorable. And Christians who hold positions of power, like these two ministers that I told stories about, they are not deplorable. They are people who are at elite levels in terms of the Christian faith, who are held in esteem, who are viewed as having authority and trust. And does that need to be dislodged with a sense of understanding your sin? Maybe. This woman didn't need to understand her sin any better. She understood it (laughs) too well already. You know, Simon's, as a Pharisee, I mean, he's a powerful figure. He could have had her ostracized. He could have had her thrown out of. Who knows what he could have had done to her, right? The only reason she's there... Yeah, why is she there? That just that just popped into my head. Like, why did she come? Let's go a little earlier in this story. Okay. Um, so I started reading at verse 40. Instead, if we go back to verse 36, uh, still of, of Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked, and I'm reading from the NRSV, by the way. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman it is who is touching him that she is a sinner. So maybe this is a test. Maybe he's, he's allowed this to go on because it's a test. Maybe because Jesus isn't, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, like the social, I mean, it would be really interesting actually for me to grab the social science commentary by um, Robert Molina and see what he has to say on that particular verse. I, I'm not sure. There could be more context going on. At very least, it seems like it's a test by, by the Pharisee, right? So he's permitting this to go on. And maybe there is something about, you know, people entering other people's houses, or maybe this was out in a courtyard, or I don't know. Like I don't think it's quite like our situation now, where, you know, somebody doesn't wander into your house. <laughs> no,
0: and it's interesting in the message, it refers to her as the town harlot, ah, not sinner. Well, I mean, the it's the message, so.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so maybe she was. You know, and that's that's I guess that's the other thing too. That the, the, very clearly the notion of reputation in Luke seven, this woman has a reputation and there is no way around it. And she is very deeply aware of that reputation. Um you know, and I guess uh yeah, the question of reputation, it's it's totally different for people who are a Christian elite, like the ministers I described and, and maybe the people that this writer is focusing on. But you know, bringing it back to you, I, I, I guess it, it seems like we're trying to take, and I'm not suggesting the readers trying to do this, uh, although I don't know. The sentence is very general. I would agree that people who don't focus on grace are those who aren't really aware of the enormity of their sin. When sin becomes apparent to a person, then grace becomes a lot more crucial to their story. yeah. Although, of course, maybe I guess I would say, though maybe uh, it becomes a lot more apparent to you to to hide, right? So uh,
0: <sighs> I just wondered at a certain point too. I wondered if we were arguing about semantics, and and I want to be, and I also people are like, why aren't you giving this person's name or location or whatever? This person shared some like really deep personal stuff about their story, and so to respect their privacy and and their live. That's kinda of why we're keeping it vague the way we are. Yeah.
1: I completely just lost my thought. <laughs> well you were talking about semantics just a moment.
0: Oh I wonder I wonder if we could be accused of arguing about semantics with the listener and what we're talking about. In the sense that I almost wonder if if love and grace could maybe be used interchangeably here. Where love equals grace. And in our discussion, we were saying, no, grace is a part of love. Are we splitting hairs? Are we pushing this farther than it needs to?
1: Um, well, I don't know. I, I still see grace as a mode of love. It is that mode of uh, pardon. Uh, and of of receiving, you know, if, if you like receiving what one... Uh, feels that one does not deserve. And I guess what I would still be heading towards is this notion, you know, maybe back in, to come back to the story of the woman in Luke 7, is this notion of forgiveness. And the grace, forgiveness, these all only make sense in the context of a relationship that is a love relationship, they only make sense there. They only thrive and are not sort of they're 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 ongoing, right? They're 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 permanent, if you like, within that context. Any any other context, and and it's sort of dependent on my actions, dependent on who I am, dependent on uh, situations. So I guess that's where I'm going with this. And I guess what for me is important here is I don't want to be concerned with the enormity of my sin. I want to be concerned with the enormity of God's love for me. I want to be concerned and preoccupied with my love for God. When I am in that space, I am acting rightly. I am living well towards myself. I am loving my neighbor rightly. I am rightly disposed to all things around me. That's the defining, those are the defining points. Do, do I get in the way of that love relationship with God? Sure, I do. Do I make mistakes? Uh, <laughs> you know, some of them quite intentional that, uh, throw up boundaries or uh, obstacles and, and create boundaries. Yeah, sure, I do. And I guess I just want to, I, I would still want to be extremely careful, extremely careful. Certain people don't need to focus on their sins. Do they need to be aware of them? Do they need to be aware of the things? Sure. If, if you're if you're doing things that thwart a relationship, a love relationship with you that you have, that's going to cause you pain. That's a con- There's going to be a consequence to that, and you're going to step back and say, boy, why did I do that? That was stupid. I've driven this person away. Now, we don't do that with God. We don't drive God away, but we drive ourselves away from God. That's the result. That's what happens. So sure I'm gonna be, I'm that th- that's a big deal, right? But it's not the sort of focus. The focus is I want to get closer to God because I love God. God loves me. And this is this is a, a relationship where I am most who I am, and where I am best oriented and integrated with my world. Why wouldn't I want to be as intimately acquainted with this relationship and as close, as closely collaborating with god within this relationship as i could be i wouldn't i'd want to be just as close as i could be i guess a lot comes down to what the writer was thinking about sin and typically what i understand about sin is a list of things that i do wrong and will a list of things that i do wrong help me in my relationship with god maybe at the outset as you go along in that relationship no i don't think it will because you know what that sounds to me like a relationship between a sovereign and a servant is that there yes Is that the focus? No, I don't see it as the focus. Well, and then it would would also
0: imply that that God is kind of always holding this stuff over our heads. Remember what a bad person you were and remember all the stuff that I'd (laughs) like. Almost the idea that that God would say, you know, remember how much I pardoned you from. But then if God was saying that, then he... In my experience, whenever someone likes to remind me of how much they've uh, let me off the hook... They haven't totally
1: let me off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's true. And I, I guess what I would say is I think the writers are, uh, you know, listener response uh, comment there works best for me in a context where you have someone who is of high esteem, of high reputation in a Christian position, and they are doing things that are wrong and hurtful for others where they are abusing and misusing their positions of authority, trust, and power. It's not like this idea of sin and our problematic relating with each other, with God, etc. is not a big deal. It is a big deal, and there can be big consequences. But I guess there are typically where that's the focus. You know, it could be situations like in the prodigal son with the, the prodigal son who says, you know, I'm going to go off and, 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 and live whatever lifestyle I want and disregard others and, uh, you know, devalue some of the primary relationships in my life. In other situations, I think it's, it's much more of a, a systematic and, a, a, I guess, a, a network of people who are colluding in certain ways, whether they know it or not. And I guess ultimately the goal for me is being focused on God being preoccupied with how much God loves me and what I guess for, that's what I'd like to investigate what goes into that how do I get to the point where I'm preoccupied with God's love you know where that's my concern as opposed to I'm so concerned with all the things I do wrong and I think the only way you get to that point is being in the shoes of the woman or uh, well, maybe she didn't have shoes Who was washing Jesus feet with her tears you have been forgiven. You have been let go from all those things. You have been told, I love you and I don't care. I know what you've done and that's not important to me. I think the only way we become preoccupied with God's love is when we, like God, cease being preoccupied with the things we've done wrong and become preoccupied with that relationship. And I don't know what that will look like for you. You know, I don't know what's involved in that for you. Those are some good things to think about.
0: I'm also not completely riding off that I haven't done wrong things, or that I don't need to look at those deeper, or that there's some subconscious part of me that that doesn't want to respond to those. I'm open. To, I'm I'm trying to remain open to uh, all possibilities here.
1: Yeah, and I guess I there's a, I guess a final comment is there's a difference between being open to the things that you do that create problems and uh have negative impacts and consequences on others and those things being the reason why your relationship with god is a non-starter that's a huge 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 distinction right and there's another one on top of that which is not just about the idea of is my relationship so you're looking at how do i get my relationship with god to work because right now it's a non-starter. Well, the, the the two guys I had examples of those two ministers, um, as far as I know, overtly, I mean, <clears throat> they're, they're 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 exemplars in their community of how to be in right relationship with God. So that's a very different situation again, right? It's not about people who self-identify as seekers and who say this isn't working or who are just, you know, everyday sort of Christians who are, you know, um, stumbling on.
0: Well, the spooky music means only one thing. This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment at our website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 38. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey, untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.